I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Castro stopped by to talk about a few things. The Latino vote in the 2020 election, what went wrong with the Democrats' goal of increasing their House majority, the silence among Republicans as President Trump tries to steal the election, and why he thinks Joe Biden beat him in the quest for the nomination and will become the 46th president of the United States. Hear it all right now. Secretary Julian Castro, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Hey, great to be with you, Jonathan. Before we get to the topic that we are here to talk about, uh, what I wanted to talk about and you want to talk about, and that is the Latino vote in 2020, we got to talk about the Biden transition and what you're in for. Do you want to go back into a presidential administration? Look, that's his decision. Of course, it's his decision. Yeah. But I've said that I'm I'm open to that. Like I haven't taken anything off the table. I haven't put anything on the table. I haven't had any conversations with the transition team or with, with the president-elect about that. But the thing that I do know, and I can tell this already from the names that have been put out there for different positions, is that the team that he's assembling is going to be a spectacular one. And it's going to be so much more competent and effective than what we've seen over the last four years. It goes without saying, you know, four years ago, Donald Trump promised everybody that he would surround himself with the best people. And then, you know, it couldn't be that couldn't have been further from the truth. Joe Biden is actually surrounding himself with some of the best people out there whether it's the folks who are up for treasury or AG or any number of positions. And so, you know, whether I'm part of that or not, what I have confidence in and what matters most to people is that these are going to be very competent, effective folks. Okay. So I'm going to continue to put you on the spot and in president Obama's administration in the second term, you were the secretary of housing and urban development. So let's just take that off the table. You know, I want to go back to, to where you were before dream job, dream scenario. Just forget that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are going to be the next president and vice president of the United States. What would be the dream job in a presidential administration? Well, I mean, I was running for president. That would have been the dream. Well, of course, they, yeah. the good people of Iowa and New Hampshire saw otherwise, and and rightly so in 2020. But yeah, no, I mean, like, I'm going to leave all of those conversations to the transition team. And that's uniquely a president's decision. And so, uh, you know, I feel like I'm going to continue to use my voice in any way that I can on the issues that and the vision that I pressed forward in the presidential campaign. A lot of that vision is shared, I think, with both President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris. But I'll always find a way to serve in any way I can, even if it's only in supporting great candidates for office up and down the ballot, which I was happy to do in 2020. So transportation? <laughs> the, uh, there are, uh, yeah, there, any of those roles for people that are interested in public service are great roles. <laughs> All right. And, and I was only pressing on labor and transportation and, and you didn't give me a chance to keep going down the list because, I mean, let's not forget, before you ran for president, before you were secretary of housing and urban development, you were a mayor. Yeah. Yeah. You were the mayor of San Antonio. So it's not with, it's not out of the realm of the possible that those two agencies would be something of interest, maybe an ambassadorship, the World Food Program in Rome. I mean, there are lots of things, but we'll just leave that alone. 
we'll leave it alone. Yeah, I, I feel like um, that you know, this is an exciting time for a lot of people that want to serve and uh, we'll see what happens. I love pressing you folks who are, you know, on the precipice of possibly joining the cabinet, trying to watch you squirm. But let's talk about something that you actually can talk about and want to talk about. And that is the Latino vote in the 2020 election. As I said before, I am fascinated by what happened. Talk to me from your perspective about what happened in the 2020 election vis-a-vis the Latino vote. Well, overall, the uh, Latino vote was still a very important and impactful part of the Democratic coalition. And you could see that most notably in wins in Arizona, Nevada, even in a community like Georgia, you know, where there's been a growing Latino community over the last decade or so. So overall, very positive. The turnout rate among Latinos was higher than it was in 2016, like it was for all other Americans. So that was very positive. Obviously, you also had some of these areas of the country where Democrats didn't perform as well as I would have wanted them to, or anybody would have wanted them to that was rooting for Joe Biden and, and Democrats. I think of Miami-Dade County, for instance, in Florida. Yeah, so let's go through each area. So in Miami-Dade County in Florida, what were the dynamics there that made the turnout on behalf of Joe Biden not what Democrats hoped it would be? Well, you know, you probably heard this term monolithic, right? More in the last two or three weeks, two weeks since the election than have in the last year. Florida is probably the most pan-Latino community in the entire United States. And South Florida is like the epicenter of that. And so you've had a large, traditionally conservative-leaning Cuban-American community there that until President Obama came along in 2008, but really 2012 in his reelect, was decidedly more Republican, right? And leaned more Republican in 2020 than they did in 2016. There's a growing Venezuelan-American community, same thing. But there's also a, a Puerto Rican community there. And there is a growing Mexican-American community there. So in that state, you have you know, different groups of Latinx folks that are tugging in different directions, partisan-wise. However, you know, I think Trump's focus this year on scaring people into believing that Joe Biden somehow would be like a Maduro or Chavez or Castro. You know, he, he, they were dogged about that in the campaign. And I think, you know, I haven't seen any analysis of this. All of this is going to be analyzed. But, you know, my sense is that with enough people that that probably made a difference in, hmm. in turning people in one direction. In South Texas, it's largely Mexican-American, totally different dynamic without the history that Cuban-Americans have with their, you know, original country of origin in Cuba. And there, I think that one is especially going to need more analysis because mm -hmm. there hasn't been that traditional link to the Republican Party, apart from in 2004, when George W. Bush, who had already been the governor of Texas and then was running for re-election as president, actually did take, you know, a decent percentage in those very counties that are being pointed out in South Texas as having 
move toward Trump decidedly in this election. You know, I'm looking at this story in Politico by Jack Herrera. Trump didn't win the Latino vote in Texas. He won the Tejano vote. Understanding the difference will be key to Democrats moving past their faltering one-size-fits-all approach to Hispanics. I'll admit I have not finished the entire article, and obviously this story is focused on South Texas. And oddly, and I say oddly because President Trump's support in South Texas among the Latinos there went up compared to 2016. And I remember was seeing something about that and thinking, wait, given everything that President Trump has said and done on immigration, separating families at the border, putting children in cages at the border, that he actually increased his Latino support. I know and understand and can intellectualize how the Latino vote is not monolithic, but given what the president has done, I'm still scratching my head and trying to understand what is it about this man, given his record, allowed him to increase the support. What do you think? I think there are a lot of different reasons for the outcome. And folks are going to spend a lot of time trying to understand which ones of these or which one was the primary reason. A lot of people are employed in the oil and gas sector down there. You have a lot of people who are deeply religious in South Texas. Democrats don't usually invest resources into South Texas because it's been so democratic and all of the action down there happens in primaries. Those are not swing districts. And so you don't have spending generally to get people out and to persuade them. You know, any number of those things and others could be the reason that you saw some movement. And we're just going to have to spend time talking to folks and listening and engaging and, and also, I think, investing the resources. And we may need to make sure that it's not taken for granted that those areas down there are going to turn out for Democrats, at least in the numbers that we're used to them turning out. The good news is that among Latinos in Texas, you did see a holding the line or even improvement in some of the bigger counties like Bear County, my hometown of San Antonio, Harris County, Dallas County, a number of places. And so while what happened in South Texas has gotten a lot of the attention, the turnout increase in these other places and the support for Joe Biden was actually very strong in a lot of other parts of the state. And it even grew in some of the suburban communities as well. Has the conversation since Election Day driven you nuts in terms of the way we in the media and people in general are talking about the Latino vote? I guess what I would caution to folks in the media is that you can't overfocus on one part of what happened because that convolutes the entire story to make it seem like that's the only and the overwhelming thing that happened. Yes, there was backsliding in places like Miami-Dade County and in South Texas, but there was also tremendous support and propelling of Joe Biden to victory in Maricopa County and Arizona generally and holding the line in Nevada and Colorado is not even a swing state anymore, which is very Hispanic. Texas itself you know, in these larger counties did very well for Joe Biden and 
we close the gap here from nine points to 5.8 points. So overall, the state still moved in a very positive direction, but admittedly, you know, we didn't meet expectations in terms of how well, how close Texas was going to be. Well, Texas has always been for Democrats sort of, it's like the apple on the string. Democrats keep reaching for it and someone keeps yanking the string and the apple pulls away, but Democrats keep getting closer and closer. Do you think that Democrats will succeed? Is 2024 the election that flips Texas from red to blue, as it were? Well, I think to say so definitively, we'll probably get a whole bunch of eye rolls right now, just two weeks after right. polls in a roll had showed that it was within the margin of error and then it ended up being almost six points. So, but what I will say is I think that in 2022 and then 2024, that we're going to continue to go in this direction of the state becoming more and more competitive. What does that look like? Does that mean a democratic victory or does it mean, you know, that it's three points next time and then it's one point and then it flips over a few years after that? I don't know. But I mean, the state is clearly changing. You know, even Republicans would have to say that, you know, 5.8 point difference is very different from the Texas of 10 years ago, where, you know, eight years ago, Barack Obama lost his reelection here by 16 points. So something has happened that's very positive for Democrats. And our challenge is we clearly need to build on that, right? I mean, kudos to Stacey Abrams and all of her work in Georgia. And we need to take that model and then just expand it because people forget, like, this is a state that is huge. It has 22 media markets. It has places as different as the Valley of Texas and the Panhandle of Texas, rural and urban, suburban, exurban people coming from all over the place every single day moving to Texas. And so it's changing that way. It's going to take time because it's such a huge and diverse state, but we are clearly on the path to flipping it. So I'm wondering if you see the warning signs that I see, or at least dark clouds. So on the one hand, you have the ray of sunshine that is the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, Democrats retaking the White House, maintaining control of the House of Representatives. But on the other hand, you have the narrowing of the Democratic majority in the House. And then you have a bunch of down-ballot races around the country that didn't go Democrats' way. What do you think is going on here? I mean, clearly, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump were able to excite their, the base to get people out. I mean, Trump, as I understand, got about 10 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. And I think that ended up helping a lot of people down ballot. We clearly didn't do as well in our congressional races as we had expected to do. People expected that we would win 10, 12 seats in the House, right. and now we're ending up losing about that much. So yeah, I, I think that perhaps people were balancing you know, their vote for president, for Democrat, and then going in the other direction in some cases for senator and for Congress in these swing districts. And what's unfortunate about that is that if the Senate stays in the hands of Mitch McConnell, we're going to get more of the same roadblocks, irrationality, a Senate that's hell-bent on stopping progress and holding on to power. And then, as you know, I mean, that really just benefits the Republicans because the Republicans have been the party of government is messed up. 
government doesn't get anything right. Get it out of your life. So if they throw a wrench in the gears and it works worse than it did before, they can then just point at that and say, oh, look, see, we told you, don't vote for these people that believe in government that want to do something with it. It's terrible. It doesn't work. They can create their own reality in that sense. Whereas as Democrats, we're always asking people, look, you know, we can do something productive here. Government has a role to play in making sure that everybody can reach their dreams and that we're more successful as a nation. But to do that, you actually have to produce results. You have to do things that are impactful in people's lives. That becomes harder when you have a Mitch McConnell blocking the way. Right. I get that. And you are absolutely right. But I want to go back to a number that you highlighted that also leapt out at me, given everything that we've seen over the last four years or five years, if you want to count when Donald Trump entered presidential politics in 2015. And that's the fact that this man got 10 million more votes than he did in 2016. After jailing babies, after banning Muslims, after Charlottesville, after everything that happened in Black Lives Matter Plaza, you know, breaking up a peaceful demonstration using federal law enforcement, and yet he still got 10 million more votes. That's a bigger issue than, you know, the Democrats not being able to, you know, have their message break through. Am I wrong in thinking that that speaks to a larger sort of psychic issue, psychic problem for the nation? Yeah, I think so. I think it also speaks to the sympathies that a lot of people out there that may not always vote have, unfortunately, and were willing to go out and vote for Donald Trump, even given all of those things that he does. Also, you know, I will say this carefully, but I, I don't assume that everybody that's going out to vote for him is fully aware of all of his record is watching all of that, following all of it. There are people that may agree with him on the abortion issue or, you know, they think that we're in too much of a quote unquote politically correct era or they're anti-equality or to give some people the benefit of the doubt, they feel like the economy was working well and you know, for some people, it still is working well, not for a lot of people, but for some people, it still is. And, and so they decide that they want to support him. I also think that, you know, he clearly made a play for a white supremacist vote. And while I don't believe that, you know, every single person that voted for him is a white supremacist, I do think that he juiced up the turnout in some places among people that sympathize with that. And I've thought of it as a Southern strategy for the Midwest. And, you know, I mean, that was the tack that he took. It's unfortunate that you can be as bad a president as he has been, as incompetent, as self-absorbed, as vindictive, childish, and still get that many votes. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. 
To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. I'm still trying to understand you know, what it says about our fellow Americans that given everything that we've seen, there are so many people who are, they're okay with it. Ah, he's intemperate. Oh, he says what's on his mind. Oh, he's rough and tumble and I wish he'd stay off Twitter, but he's great. I'm sure you've seen the conversations or seen the postings on, I've seen them on Instagram of people saying, if you've voted for someone who perpetuates hate, you don't love me, you don't care about me, and we can't be friends. I can sympathize with that thinking because for a lot of people, Donald Trump was, or is, because he's still in office, an existential threat on so many levels. But does that take things too far? Are people justified in feeling that way and taking those actions, or should they take a step back and I'm trying to think of the right word, but it's something about the, the better angels. I certainly understand why people feel like that. And there are a lot of people who justifiably feel like that. At the same time, the question becomes, if we're going to move forward as a democracy, the world's oldest, most successful democracy, how do you do that without at some point trying to reach across and begin a healing process. And beginning that healing process, I think is easier to do when you have the Oval Office and the presidency than when you don't. Because at least when you have that Oval Office, you have you know, a basis to protect a lot of people from the kinds of things that caused that sentiment based on what Donald Trump did to vulnerable communities during the last four years. So if there's a time for folks to try and bridge that divide, it's now. At the same time, Jonathan, I mean, you know very well, I mean, you, you observe it every single day. We can't be naive about who Mitch McConnell is, about his track record of stunting President Obama for those eight years, of the hypocrisy of you know blocking Merrick Garland and then turning right around and appointing Amy Coney Barrett like 10 or 11 days before the election. So you have to go into a clear-eyed with a focus on the people themselves, on trying to understand and, and try to bring the people themselves together. I don't know whether there's hope for Mitch McConnell. <laughs> I mean, you're kind to wonder whether there's hope for Mitch McConnell. I mean, we've seen that he cares about two things, power and judges. And on those two scores, he's been very successful. Could you give me your perspective on the what seems to be the fight within the Democratic caucus, the moderates versus the progressives and the squad? I interviewed Congresswoman Ilhan Omar for the podcast for Washington Post Live earlier this week, and she said, oh, you folks in the media are making way too much of it. It's not a big deal. But then when you listen to her answer, She's really going at the moderates. Like, you guys didn't do this. Are we making too much of it? Is the fracture between progressives and moderates within the Democratic caucus really a big deal? Well, look, I think as somebody that studied uh, communications and wanted to go into journalism when I was in college, I don't think you're ever going to go wrong by accusing the media writ large of highlighting conflict between groups. I mean, that's part and parcel of 
you know, what's covered, right? Uh, it's part of the DNA of mainstream media. So, yeah, I mean, I think that it is overblown. Are there fissures there? Yeah, of course there are. I mean, but that's natural. 2020 is not the first time that that's existed. I think what's happened over the last several years is that you have seen the emergence of some very dynamic and outspoken progressive leaders like Representative Omar, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, Representative Tlaib and others. And the right has taken that and blasted them on Fox News every other night and caricatured them. That makes them an easy target and a fallback for when moderates are trying to figure out, well, why did we lose our election or what happened over here in Florida or other places? And, you know, we got to where we're at in 2018 and we held the line at least for the most part and won the presidency in 2020 because we were a big tent party. We're the party that was willing to, you know, try and bring together these coalitions. And we need to continue to do that. What does that look like? Well, I mean, in Congress, it looks like in the assignments for committees, the chairs of those committees, the leadership positions within the caucus. You know, Speaker Pelosi is a master at all of this. And I have no doubt that the way she's translating this is, okay, look, how do you make sure that there's a sharing of influence and power to get things done? That's also going to be a concern, I'm sure, for President Biden, because we've seen in history, Democratic presidents had quite a time with a progressive part of their party. I'm thinking of Jimmy Carter, for instance. As a progressive myself, I say that you can't take for granted a base of the party that helps propel you to victory every single time and is an important part of the coalition. It's not the only part, sometimes not even the biggest part. But it's an essential part of victory at the presidential level and in many, many swing districts as well. How concerned are you by the efforts of the president and certain Republicans, far too many Republicans, to, in a sense, overturn the presidential election by getting states to not certify the results? Or if they have certified the results, to reverse them. Do you think he will be successful at this? I have to tell you, John, I, I absolutely cannot believe what I am seeing. The silence from these other Republicans as the president, like a child, insists that no, he did win this election. And not only insists that he won it to, to you know, preserve his own bruised ego, but then goes out and makes phone calls to try and pressure the members of the board of canvassers and other officials who would certify an election in Michigan to try and get this thing sent over to the state legislature for them to appoint different electors who will then support Donald Trump in the electoral college. I mean, this is basically, this is cheating. There's no other way to describe it. This is a full on stealing of the election. And it's the same move. He always projects onto the other side what he's trying to do so you got these folks that are supporting him saying stop the steal that's what he's doing that's what donald trump is doing there's no evidence of any fraud and in those cases where there have been discrepancies it's literally a few votes that wouldn't make any kind of difference to the outcome in 
any of the states that Joe Biden won. I mean, this is somebody who clearly has authoritarian tendencies, who puts himself over the people that he's supposed to be serving, and who can't stand the idea of losing power. And the fact that these Republicans will just sit there and not say anything, you know, to contradict that, it's cowardly. I mean, it's despicable. It's anti-constitutional. And, you know, I hope that history writes the chapter of, of how craven they're, they're being right now. Is it right to call what's happening a coup? I think it's accurate to say that that's what he's attempting. Sure. I mean, is it a military coup? No. But it's basically an abuse of democracy. But the result is the same. Right? The result would be to keep a man who is not duly and legitimately elected in power. And, you know, I feel like uh, asking, well, where are the UN observers? Because I grew up, I'm sure you grew up, we watched the evening news and you would see, oh, reports of the UN observers in some country. And Usually led by Jimmy Carter. Yeah, yeah, uh, President <laughs> Carter, who's done wonderful work over the years. I mean, but that's what's happening here in the United States. That's what the president of the United States is attempting by strong arming these officials to subvert the normal democratic process. It's amazing. And, you know, I don't know what else to say, except that we have to make sure that that does not happen. Let me close out by getting you to reflect on your own run for the Democratic nomination for president. What did you learn in your run for president? What did you learn about yourself and what did you learn about the country? I learned uh, about the country is, I think it's true that at base, people are more similar than different. I learned that whether people are, are liberal or conservative, except for people that are extremely partisan, and that's really not a big part of the population, but whether people are liberal or conservative, the thing that they want most out of your mouth are solutions. They want you to make an honest effort at putting together a solution that would improve their life as it relates to the education of their kid or how they're gonna have you know, security in retirement or you name it. I mean, people really perk up when you talk about solutions and how you're actually gonna approach something. I also learned in terms of the politics of it that, that the person that wins the Democratic nomination or Republican nomination, and then of course the person that wins the presidency really is the person that meets the moment the most. You have to have talent, you have to have a good campaign, you gotta have the money, all of those things, right? But, you know, it's Joe Biden met the moment. I think what Americans wanted was the sense that instead of this chaotic, self-absorbed, inexperienced president, that we were gonna have somebody that people knew that they could trust, that had the wisdom and the experience and the know-how to actually calm things down, bring things back to, you know, quote unquote normal, right? And just let people take a breath and get back to the America that a lot of people knew. Now that's an America that still needs vast improvement for a lot of people, right? But that's an improvement over where Donald Trump has been taking us. And so, you know, Joe Biden is a man of character, super talented, ran a good campaign, and he met the moment of 2020. 
to his credit. And what did you learn about yourself? I mean, I learned some things about myself uh, that some things, I, I don't know, were new, but you know, going through a presidential campaign is unlike any other experience in politics. I had never done it before, of course. And so you're on a much bigger stage. And to me, you know, it was an open question going into the debates, going into forums where you had to answer questions on any number of topics, some of which you've never dealt with before, right? You're just thinking about mm -hmm. in the couple of weeks before that. And, you know, I guess from that standpoint, I considered it a success on my end. Also, you know, I learned that I could stay true to my vision for the country and, and also reach out to people that I hadn't been in front of before, in audiences in Iowa and New Hampshire that, you know, I, I've grown up in South Texas, uh, in a very Hispanic community, and you know, always wonder, okay, you know, how much does that translate? And even though I was not successful in winning the caucuses or doing well in New Hampshire, I felt like people gave me an opportunity and that I was able to connect with folks I also learned that you could get great Mexican food in Iowa, which was a delight <laughs> to learn. <laughs> With that, Julian Castro, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, former Mayor of San Antonio, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.